Would you turn with me to the Gospel of John? We are working our way through the Gospel of John as a church. We're in uh, John chapter 1, verses 35. We're actually going to read through uh, 51 this week. So John 1.35 all the way down through 51. Now, as we think about the writer who is the Apostle John, who is writing to us, he writes with a purpose. And it is a purpose of testimony, it is a purpose of belief and faith, it is a, a testimony of joy, and he gives it to us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and here's what he says. Again, the writer of the gospel says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, the things that are written in the gospel of John, these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Everything John writes about, he writes all of these accounts so that we might believe and have life in his name. So everything that he says is meant for that purpose. As we come to this um, section of Scripture, this is the, the overarching message today. It is the testimony that leads to a testimony that leads to a testimony. Throughout the, um, the history of the church, what we find is that when somebody encounters Jesus, when somebody knows who Jesus is, they are changed from the inside out. Again, in Ezekiel 36, we read that the prophet Ezekiel was said that, that one day there would come and, and God would take away their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And when that heart of flesh, that heart of belief and trust in Jesus begins to beat, it beats in such a way that it leads us to tell other people about Jesus to the point where you just can't quit talking about this good, good news that you found in Christ. Like you're so excited to the point where you might actually talk more about Jesus than the fact that KU won their fourth game. Maybe, maybe, right? Because I got to tell you, I mean, in the midst of this week around Lawrence, all you heard about was, I mean, the schedule for basketball came out, like the Big 12 schedule, and nobody cared because everybody was so excited about what was going on. But what happens is when something grabs your heart, when something grabs your heart, you cannot help but tell others. And what you find is that we, we go to our families first, and then oftentimes we'll go to our friends to declare and proclaim all that Jesus has done for us. And so there's some very simple things that Jesus tells us to do, and they're very, very simple for us to get. And yet what I find is that Christianity is not difficult for us to comprehend, but it is very difficult for us to execute, if that makes sense. For us to do. So, having said that, um, would you pray with me as we get into John 1.35? Father, as we read your word, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not find words of information, but that we would find words of divine revelation. Father, that we would not be so prideful to think that we handle the word, but that the word would handle us. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would ignite and, and stoke the flames of our heart in such a way that we love Jesus more, to the point where we cannot help but tell others. So Father, help us. Help me as I preach. Give me clarity of thought, lucidity of speech. And Father, for those who are listening, 
Father, help them to be active listeners. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 1, verse 35. Look at what happens when somebody encounters Jesus. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So here's what we find we see that John the Baptist, in in John chapter 1, sees Jesus coming again, just like he saw him before, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, What's interesting about this that I find um, very, very interesting is that notice in verse 29 of the preceding section, in verse 29 it says, then the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet it's the next day where he says, uh, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus and he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the second time he said, behold the Lamb of God, but it was only this time that the disciples were like, huh, maybe we should follow this guy, which is comforting to me because it tells us that we might actually have to hear the gospel more than one time in order to respond to the call in our lives. The disciples had heard John say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and yet it was the second time through that they said, oh, maybe we should follow this guy, right? Like, this is what we should be doing. And so they, they follow him. And the two, of the, the, the two disciples that we saw were Andrew, and, and history would say that it's most likely John the Apostle, although he's not referenced here. Oftentimes when John references an apostle, uh, an unnamed one, he's speaking about himself. So he says, you know, so they, so they come and they, they, they see him and they, they take with him, and they go with Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now we're going to get to that in a little bit. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. 
So they came and saw him, right? So they, they spend time. So really what's happening is at about four o'clock in the afternoon, they come to Jesus and, and they say, Jesus asked them of this very poignant question, what are you seeking? And they call him rabbi and he says, well, come and you will see. So they spend this evening with Jesus. But what happens is, what we find is that after they spend the evening with Jesus, after they spend time with Jesus, in verse 40, one of the two heard, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, like I said before, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. That's where we are, right? What we find is that in the midst of the church, in the midst of the, the building up and the gathering of God's people, that the Lord used the testimonies of other people. I think there are three different ways that we see this in this particular passage. We see the testimony of a mentor. We see the testimony of a brother, and we see the testimony of a friend. And it's through these three testimonies that we find ourselves walking with Jesus or pursuing Jesus. Think about this. The Lord brings disciples to himself through the testimonies of his follower. The first testimony is that of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the second time he says, the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God. And that word behold means not just to look up, but rather I actually see something that is greater than what I'm seeing. I'm seeing through this. It's not just I see Jesus, but I'm seeing that he is the one who will take away the sins of the world from the people who believe. And in the midst of this mentor leads others to Jesus. Now, that's a, a beautiful testimony of John. It's a quick testimony, right? But what he does is he says, this is who Jesus is, and yes, you should go follow him. Notice that John doesn't say, no, 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 no. Come on back, guys. I've got more things to teach you. But rather, he says, it's better for you if you go sit at the feet of Jesus than you follow me around. The question becomes, when you have a mentor and that mentor says, the most important thing in my life is that you would follow Jesus. You begin to listen. The question for us is this. Do we have a mentor that has led us to Jesus? Or maybe even a better term is, are we pouring out our lives in the lives of other men and women? Are we mentoring the younger generations? And we see this in the midst of, of Sunday school. In children's church, that, that people, when they give their time of it, they're saying, I'm pouring out my life so that you might know who Jesus is. The most important person I can ever introduce you to is the person of Jesus. I mean, that's one of the things that we love about Sunday school. What we love about Vacation Bible School is that we get to proclaim to these young children, this is who Jesus is. Is. Now, there's a story about a mentor. Um, there was a Sunday school teacher, and his name was uh, Mr. Kimball. And he had his heart set on winning a young man for Christ. He had, he'd had this Sunday school class, and he had one, one man, one young uh, man in particular, who was just, he was not following Christ. He was coming to Sunday school, but you could tell his life was 
you're diverging away from the church, away from the people of God, away from Jesus. And so he had it in his mind, I really want this young man to know Christ. And so he showed up at his workplace, and he, this was in Boston, and he shows up at this man's workplace, and he, and he shows up and he walks in, but he doesn't see the young man, so he walks out. And then he thinks, but, but I really want to share the gospel with him. So he walks in, he walks out again. And then he walks around back and he actually finds the young man in the storeroom boxing up boxes of shoes because he was a shoe salesman. And so he began to speak and after praying about the matter and as he found him, he began to speak to him about Christ and about his soul and started down to um, you know, what it was that he was a sinner. So he says, um, I thought my call, I'm just read this, I thought my call might embarrass the boy. And that when I went away, the other clerks would ask who I was and taunt him with my efforts in trying to make him a good boy. In the meantime, I had passed the store and discovering this, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. I found him in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. He said it was a weak plea for Jesus. I don't know just what the words I used, nor could Mr. Um, or, or this man tell, I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. It seemed the young man was just ready for the light and then broke upon him. And there in the back of the store in Boston, D.L. Moody gave himself and his life to Christ. Forty years afterwards, when preaching in Boston, Mr. Moody, and D.L. Moody, if you haven't heard that name, he was a great evangelist. Um, he you know, kind of uh, was before Billy Graham himself thus described the effect of his conversion upon his life. And this is what Moody says about his life. He says, I can almost throw a stone from Tremont Temple to the spot where I found God 40 years ago. I wish I could do something to lead some of you young men to that same God. He has been a million times better to me than I have been to him. I remember the morning on which I came out of my room after I had first trusted Christ. I thought the sun shone a good deal brighter than it ever had before. I thought it was just smiling upon me. And as I walked out upon Boston Common and heard the birds singing in the trees, I thought they were all singing a song to me. Do you know, I fell in love with the birds. I had never cared for them before. It seemed to me that I was in love with all of creation. I had not a bitter feeling against any man, and I was ready to take all men to my heart. If a man had not, has not the love of God shed abroad in his heart, he has not yet been regenerated. Again, what does it look like that we are mentoring, that we are coming alongside those who do not know but are younger so that we can lead them to the best possible news ever? Are we doing that? Have we been mentored, and are we mentoring? Now, now one of the things, and one of the claims I, I find that's true, is that many guys will say, many uh, men and women will say, how am I to mentor if I have not been mentored myself? You know, find an older Christian that you can say, hey, can you tell me what's the most important thing in your life? And all you have to do is sit down and read the Bible and care for a young one. Secondly, what we find in the midst of this in terms of testimonies in John chapter 1 is, is look at what you find. Um, Andrew, after Andrew has spent some time with Jesus, notice who is the first person that Andrew goes to. The first person he goes to after he's spent an evening listening to Jesus, he says this. He goes um, in verse 40 of chapter 1, he says, one of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus 
was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, I love that, he first, which means he didn't think about anything else. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now that's what we find is that um, in verse 41, the first thing he does after he understands who Jesus is, Andrew, the first thing he does is he goes to his brother. But notice what it says in verse 42. It says, he brings him to Jesus. He brings him to Jesus. He just doesn't tell him about Jesus. He brings him to Jesus. Now, I think this is really important because I think that we find within the midst of the family of God and even our family of origin is many, many, many people will be led to the Lord through the testimony and the witness and the invitation of a family member into the family of God. But what you find is that not only um, what I love about this is the invitation. He brings him to Jesus. I think many times we have this thought that we have a sort of a non-invite to church, right? Like, here's what I mean by that. Is that sometimes you might be talking with somebody and you say, hey, you know, I would love to invite you to church. And they're like, yeah, that'd be great. Well, our church meets at 1015. Come on in. It'll be great. That's kind of a non-invitation, all right? It's better to do this. I'm just giving you, give me some points, okay? It's better to say, where can I meet you for breakfast? Where can I meet you for coffee and then bring you to church and sit with you and introduce you to all the people around me so that you don't feel uncomfortable as you walk in the door? I mean, let's put it this way. Walking into a church for the very first time, you have all of these feelings stirring up in you again as if you're a freshman looking for a place to sit at your lunch table. And you're like, where am I going to sit? Who's going to talk to me? And then how many of you ever been, been to a church, you walked in, you sat down, you got up and you left and you thought, nobody talked to me. That's crazy. So when we invite people, let's bring people, right? Let's bring people with us. Let's say, how can we bring you so that you might come and see all that the Lord has done? But in the midst of this, we see that you know, family members are oftentimes the, the people who lead us to Jesus. Again, when we think about this, who do you love the most? You love your children, your parents, your siblings. And I know many of you, your greatest desire is that your children would know Jesus and that your grandchildren would know Jesus. That when you close your eyes for the last time, that you are assured that you would see them again forever in the kingdom of heaven. There was a, a man named Stan Telkin, and Stan Telkin was a traditional Jewish father whose daughter Judy one day informed him that she had come to faith in Christ. And a friend at college had given her a Bible and helped her study it with the results that she believed. And despite knowing that her family would bitterly oppose her conversion, and she nonetheless spoke to her father in words similar to those used by Andrew in the, his witness to his brother Simon. She said, Father, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Telkin, this Jewish man, felt utterly betrayed. 
It was worse than if she had gotten pregnant or kicked out of school. But he loved his daughter, and he and his wife could not help noticing the positive changes in her life. Their daughter gave both of them New Testament, saying, read the Bible for yourself and find out whether it's true or not. Her father took up the challenge, determined to prove her false. Instead, he found that Jesus' invitation is true. And as he studied the Bible, as he read passages like Jeremiah 31, speaking about the new covenant and this promised new covenant that would come about, he said, why have we never spoke about these things in synagogue? And as he read about Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant of Jesus, he said, this seems to be Jesus. And as he read Psalm 110, he said, this must be Jesus. And in the midst of studying the Old Testament and the New Testament and thinking about Jesus, as he studied the Bible, his eyes were opened by the Lord and he saw for himself that Jesus is the Messiah. He went on to have a powerful evangelistic outreach to other Jews. And today, Stan Telkin and his book, Betrayed, has been used to lead many Jews to Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second. This college girl began to study and gave a Bible to her friend named Judy. And Judy was led to share that message with her parents. And then her dad became an evangelist to the Jews. And really, what we see is this threefold um, act of being a, a witness. We see that there's a biblical proclamation, whether it's behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the answer, and you use that the Word of God to back up what you're saying, but it's also your personal testimony. Because when your life begins to be changed by the power of the gospel, people begin to see it, and they go, something's different about this guy. Something's different about what he loves and what he hates and what he pursues. But the last part is not only that you, you have a faithful proclamation, not only that you have a personal testimony, but then you have an invitation. And what, what she did was, Judy invited her dad to say, Dad, just read it. Read it with me. I invite you to read these things and talk about these things with me. So we see that there's proclamation, there's a testimony, a personal testimony, and then we also see the idea of an invitation. You know, sometimes I think that um, we struggle with that. Um, Rico Tice talks about, um, think about how often times have you had the opportunity to, to share the love of Christ with somebody, but you didn't do it because you were worried about what they might think of you. You think, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really want to tell them about Jesus because they might push me away. You know, Rico Tice, uh, in his book, Honest Evangelism, tells the story about how his grandmother was passing away. And he says this, he said, my, my he says, and he, and he laments this. He says this, we all have moments in life when we wish we could rewind and do things very differently. <laughs> any of you guys have that, by the way? <laughs> any of you have like any moments in your life you wish you could rewind and do differently? Maybe this morning already. For me, the most regret is what happened before my grandmother's death, or rather what didn't happen. My grandmother died absolutely convinced that God would accept her because she was a good person. She had no faith in Christ. My brother and I were the only Christians in the family at that point, and my brother broke down in tears when he did the Bible readings at her funeral. I was the only one who knew why. She had died without Christ. And here's what I regret. In the week before my grandfather died, I did not speak to her about Jesus. I loved her, but I didn't say anything to her. When my other grandmother had died, I'd taken her hand and prayed with her. 
but not that grandmother. I just let her go. Why didn't I tell her about Christ? I've come to realize that I was afraid of what she'd say, and I was afraid of what my family would say because I knew they'd think it was inappropriate and, un and unhelpful. I was afraid. I love my grandmother, and she loved me. But the hard truth is that I love myself more than her. I wanted my family to think well of me more than I wanted her to think of Christ as her Savior. That's why I didn't speak to her. I loved myself more than I loved her and more than I loved my Lord. Now, that's a sad story. But I think oftentimes the reality is we love ourselves more than we love the person that we're called to witness to. The, the, the last one we see in, in John chapter 1 is that not only a mentor, not only a family member, but to our friends. We see this in, in Philip's testimony. Notice what he says is if we come here and we see, um, you know, um, look, the next day, verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to me, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, out, um, that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So what you find with Philip is, is Jesus comes and he says, follow me. And there's this call. There's this call that you can't resist if you're called by Jesus. And, and, and Philip goes with Jesus. And then he goes and immediately finds Nathaniel, his friend. And he says, we want, I want you to come see this person who is the Messiah. All of Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, and it's all about him. It's all about this one who would come and he would... Um, begin to restore and, and reconcile all things to God. The one that we've been waiting for, he's here. I mean, what, what a great testimony. And then, you know, Nathaniel says to him, he says, what, you know, let, let me just, let me just uh, paraphrase this. Nathaniel, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Columbia? Y'all get that? I'm just kidding. I mean, it was for the Wilsons. You know, I mean, I'm just, you know, as I think about that, when it could anything good come out of this, you see what was going on was Nathaniel, either he knew that Jesus was supposed to be coming out of Bethlehem, but also the fact that he was actually, um, <laughs> that, that, that Nathaniel was actually out of um, Nain, I believe, which was a rival city to Nazareth. And so it was kind of like, you know, maybe the, the rivalry that you might have between, you know, opposing sports teams or whatever. And he says, can anything good come out of that, right? But what we find is that the friends that we have are also the people that we're called to witness to. We're called to testify who Jesus is. And what we find is that whether you're being mentoring other people, whether you're, it's in your family, or if there's deep friendships. Here's what I want you to think about this week, and this is how you can apply the sermon, okay? Who do you have in your life that doesn't know Jesus? Could be a family member, probably a friend. You probably know some friends that don't know Jesus. Could be a coworker. Man, I've got a couple coworkers I need to tell about Jesus desperately. <laughs> Ryan and Tyler need them de desperately, right? But, but this is what we need, right? I want you to think of one person, and then I want you to pray, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the love I have of Jesus with them. Who might that be? Who might that be? And again, Rico Tice talks about, you know, he had a friend of his who got mad at him because he didn't tell him about the love of Christ. This is a funny story. He said there was a friend 
Uh, so, so Rico Tice, who was this, you know, again, he's, he's a current day guy. He, he lives over in England. Um, and, he, and he said that he had preached a sermon actually over John 1 verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, um, and I simply remember that in the sermon, I simply and starkly said that either we pay for our sin in hell or the Lamb pays for us on the cross. And he had a friend called Ed who played his sermon one night to his housemates who were, in the, who were on the same rugby team as Rico. So Rico preached a sermon about Behold the Lamb of God, and Ed, one of his rugby teammates, decided to share that sermon, and it was actually a tape back then, uh, with all of the rugby housemates, and, and Rico didn't know this. And in the midst of Ed sharing this, one of the guys on the rugby team, Dave, got very upset. And here's why he got upset. He said, if that's what Rico believes... The fact that he said nothing of it to me in months means he's not really my friend. So Ed rang me up and said, Rico, you need to speak to Dave. He's upset that you've not talked to him till now about what's in the sermon. And Dave was right. If I'd really loved him, I'd have warned him and shown him the cross and invited him to trust Jesus and spend eternity with him in the new creation. It was a life-changing phone call. I found myself praying that I wouldn't only have a sense of God's love for me, but that I would have the same love for others, that I would love them enough to risk rejection in order to speak to them about Jesus and warn them about hell and to delight them in the peace that God affords. So this is why we talk about Jesus, even though it's tough. This is why it's always worth it. You know, hell is a terrible reality. We desperately want people to avoid. The new creation is a wonderful place we urgently want people to enjoy. And the Lord Jesus deserves glory, and supremely, we want him to be given it. That's why we evangelize. That's what gets us being willing to, and even wanting to, take the risk of crossing the pain line. Again, do we love enough? Do we love someone enough to risk rejection to tell them about Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us. Now, as we think about all those things, um, let's go back to what Jesus says at the very beginning in verse 38. So we're going backwards, verse 38. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following. And again, these are the first two disciples after they see Jesus. And they said, what are you seeking? Boy, what a poignant question that is, right? What are you seeking? All of us are seeking something. Have you guys ever seen that bumper sticker that's on cars where it says, all those who wander are not lost? I kind of look at it. Maybe you have it. I'm sorry if you have it. But I look at it, I'm like, really? You kind of look lost, you know? But, but you're certainly seeking something, right? Like everybody's looking for something. Everybody's pursuing something in the midst of their life. Now, you know, some people, they might actually, you know, um, come and, you know, they might say, are they seeking to escape the hardships of life? And they may come to church for that reason. You know, what are you seeking? And, and Jesus was trying to figure out what was Andrew and John, what were they trying to seek by following him? Were they treat, maybe trying to figure out like, hey, you know, we're tired of eating locust and wild honey. You know, we're done with it, right? We don't want to eat bugs anymore. Do you have a better place? That's why I think maybe where they said, well, where are you living? Because John, he, you know, his tailor's bad and his diet's terrible. And we're thinking about something else. But what we find here is, you know, are they seeking to escape the hardships of life? 
You know, sometimes people will walk in the doors of the church thinking, if I come to Jesus, will I escape all the hardships of life? Will my life be easy from here on out? You may want protection from trials that this world throws at us, but they will likely be disappointed when you invite them in with Jesus because following him does not lead us away from trials, but often into them. Sorry, that's the bad news. Sometimes Jesus allows us to get into a boat right at He allows us to get into a boat and go across the sea that will be overwhelmed by a storm, but he does promise to go with us. Christians are not escapists, but we are called to be a part of the real world. He calls us to be the salt and light and a light shining on the hill, which means that in the midst of this, if you are called to Jesus, know that you will go through trials, but that you will not be alone. Maybe you're trying to escape that. Maybe maybe people are seeking wealth, prestige or power. They're searching for the right kind of career and the lifestyle that will foster success. For some, this might include a certain, um, a certain amount of religion, and they think Jesus can help with that. Or perhaps they've read some sort of prosperity gospel, which tells them that they will be blessed if they bless others financially. Other people want to gain peace in their lives. They find that Christianity provides activities and disciplines that are beneficial to a Uh, a turbulent soul. It is true that Christians find joy and peace by seeking after Jesus, trusting him and living for him. He taught, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What are you seeking? I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves, and then we also need to ask other people. It's a really easy question. Like, what is it that you want out of life? What is it that would give you the greatest joy in your life? Or what are you pursuing that gives you the greatest joy in your life? What are you seeking? What are your friends seeking? What are your family seeking? You know, the Bible, the message of the Bible says that the only way to be truly happy is to have a right relationship with God, to be justified Because only then will God receive us into his love and work new light within us. We can be justified before God only by coming to Jesus as the Lamb of God, finding forgiveness through his sacrifice and receiving a spotless perfection as our own righteousness before God. Spurgeon says this, he says, Are you seeking pardon? You shall find it in me. Are you seeking peace? Or are you speaking about Jesus? Are you seeking peace? Jesus says, I will give you rest. Are you seeking purity? Jesus says, I will take away your sins. A new heart I will give you and a right spirit will I put within you. What are you seeking? Some solid place for your soul upon the earth and a glorious hope for yourself in heaven. Whatever you seek, it will be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The question for us is, do we really believe that? And there are times when I know this, don't. There are times I think that there are other things that will satisfy the longings of my heart. And I know I'm not the only one in this room that feels that way. There are times I'm looking for other things that I think will give me joy. And there are times when I need to say, Lord, help me in my unbelief to believe, to trust, to know that your ways are the better ways. David Pallison writes um, in a a devotional, just, he says this um, about 
Satan, and I think this is true about spiritual warfare, Satan is continually proposing self-salvation schemes to people that are designed to keep them from the real Savior. Perpetually. That we are looking for self-salvation schemes, and you know what? I'm amazed that I actually can buy into those sometimes. In the same way that somebody thinks they're going to get rich by playing the lottery. Or, you know, again, you know, I, I do love the bumper sticker that says the lottery attacks on people who are bad at math. You know, I just find that to be really, really funny, right? Or, you know, people who think like, you know what, my life will be totally turned around now if now that Kansas has sports gambling, right? I mean, how many of you been inundated recently with tons of like, you know, DraftKings and this and blah, 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 blah. And what I really love about it, the scheme is this. At the end of those ads, you know what it says? Now, if you find yourself having a problem with sports betting, please find professional help, right? It's like a surgeon general warning. It is the biggest lie we have ever seen. And, it just, and it's in front of us. And there are people who are like, yes, you know what? If I, if I just bet $10, $15, $20 on a football game, then my life has a little bit of meaning. I have a little skin in the game, and it makes it exciting, right? I mean, some of us are just looking for, for joy, but the problem is we're looking for it outside of the person of Jesus. We do that all the time. Now, what's going to cause you, I'm going to wrap up here, what's going to cause you to actually want to tell people about Jesus? When you look at verses, um, when you look at John 1, 35 through 51, it's this, is when you spend time with Jesus, you will want to tell others. When Andrew and John spent time with Jesus, they went to, to, to Simon Peter. When Philip spent some time with Jesus, he went to Nathaniel. The reality is, when you spend time with Jesus, if you are in his word, if you are in prayer, if you understand all that he has done and you are falling more deeply in love with Jesus, you will want to tell others about him. Yeah, James Boyce says that, essentially. He says, if we spend time with Christ, then other people will matter to us, and we will want to point them to Jesus. Knowing that we are not the light, pointing to the light, desiring men and women to believe will come naturally to us if we are spending time with Jesus. Moreover, we will find ourselves going to the others, one to say simply, I have found Christ. He has changed me. Come with me to Jesus and he says this, I love this image, we are like oil-burning lamps. If we are to shine, two things are prerequisites. One, we must first be lit by Jesus Christ. And two, we must be fed by him. No matter how brightly you shone at one time as a witness for Jesus, if you quit being fed by him, your light will eventually flicker and go out. I think that's so true for us. When we spend time with Jesus, we will want to share the good news with others. I'm not even going to get to the, the bridge, Jacob's Ladder today, but let me um, end with this. I told you the story about D.L. Moody, right? How um, Edward Kimball, this Sunday school teacher, led Dwight Moody to faith in Jesus, right? Well, this is interesting. So Dwight Moody, at some point, um, who was just great evangelist, he shared the gospel, and he, he began to, sh he shared the gospel, and a man named Wilbur Chapman surrendered his life to Christ by listening to D.L. Moody proclaim what he knew about Jesus. 
Wilbur Chapman, you probably never heard of him. He became an evangelist as well. Wilbur, Wilbur Chapman, in the midst of uh, evangelizing, uh, there was a pro baseball player named Billy Sunday who uh, was led to the Lord because Wilbur Chapman was preaching. Billy Sunday became an evangelist and took over William Chapman's, or um, uh, Billy Sunday, he took over William Chapman's ministry. And then there was a young man um, who was named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham, a young man, surrendered his life to Christ after hearing about the message of Jesus, this witness and this faithful testimony. And he became an evangelist. And in 1932, at a tent revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, this 13-year-old boy named Billy Graham was led to the Lord by a man named Mordecai Ham. And since then, Billy Graham, before he passed away, had preached the gospel to about 2.2 billion people. And you think about that, that little Sunday school teacher in Boston who led D.L. Moody, Wilbur Chapman, Billy Sunday, Mordecai Ham, Billy Graham. You see, you don't know when you speak the gospel message to someone how far reaching it will go into eternity. You want to build infinite, eternal wealth? Share the gospel message with other people and let it grow. I think there's part of what we see. I think part of what, um, when, when Jesus was saying to Nathaniel, when he says, um, truly, truly, I say to you, um, you, you will see greater things. You will see greater things than these, Nathaniel. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that's a reference to Jesus being the stairway to heaven or the, the ladder to heaven. That through Christ, he opens heaven up. And he says, you'll see greater things than these. And what he was saying to Nathaniel and to Philip and to Andrew and to Peter was that if you follow me, you will see the world turned upside down by believing and trusting in me. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that we would think about one person this week that we could share the gospel with. And we would do so out of love for you and love for them. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would set aside our fears of being rejected and that with great courage, we would go forth boldly into our mission field. Father, whether that's in our home, whether that's in our office, wherever that might be, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be expectant of seeing greater things than these. So, Father, help us. Take out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.